G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Acast, Spotify, wherever you actually uh, um, get your podcast from, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we really appreciate a couple of minutes of your time if you could leave us a review. Joining Brian and myself in the in the studio today, we have uh, Professor Ken Smith uh, with us. Thank you very much, uh, Ken. For for joining us. My pleasure, Dom. Thank you for inviting me. No, no worries. And, and what we thought we'd talk about, because um, uh, Ken, you're uh, um, Professor of Anatomical Pathology here, is that Yes, that, correct? That, that, that's correct. That's, I, the, that's um, the title. I'm, that's correct. I think I'm unusual among um, veterinary surgeons in the sense that um, I did a pathology training residency immediately after I graduated and have been enriched by pathology ever since. So, so what, I, what we thought we would uh, have a talk about is really so what can anatomical pathologists do for do for us kind of in a um and, and you know not in a monty python kind of way and, and also what, what can we do to help you as as well in, in what we're what we're asking so i suppose um um would that would that be okay yes no absolutely i think that's really the uh, the kernel of getting the most from pathologies clinicians and pathologists working together we're all veterinary surgeons we're all working towards the welfare of the animals and the our clients um, and so I guess I would say the most important thing to say at the very beginning is the importance of good and clear communication between the clinician and the pathologist. And also, related to that, um, good, clear communication between the clinician and the owner or keeper of the animal. So thinking about the ability to acquire a comprehensive history from the animal's owner whether that be a biopsy from a living animal or whether that be an animal which has passed and is undertaking having a post-mortem examination undertaken, and then the ability of the clinician clearly to communicate that information to the pathologist. Um, I, I, I'm not of the school of thought, um, which some clinicians hold, which is that the provision of a history to a pathologist will somehow influence him or her, bias him or her um, towards an answer which the clinician might or might not want, so the pathologist operates in a black box with no history at all. I always think the analogy to that for a clinician would be an animal owner arriving at a practice, um, uh, walking into the consulting room, leaving the animal in the consulting room, but then themselves leaving. So I guess that would be pure clinical medicine, but the history is of enormous value. So I think that's the important first step to get that comprehensive history and communicate it. And do you like that in a bite-sized form, Ken? So in other words, do, do you just want to know what the clinician is thinking about what is going on themselves or their own concerns, or is it more the full you know, glorious Technicolor, 150 words or, you know, 15,000 words on, on the, you know, what has been going on. Yeah, that, that's a very good question, Dom. So um, here at the Royal Veterinary College, we, we, we receive both of those types of histories. So sometimes colleagues who are referring animals from uh, first opinion primary care practice to the college will include that animal's full set of clinical notes, sometimes right up to the time of first vaccination. Um, other um, clinicians uh, will distill those notes into the key points of the illness leading up to the collection of the biopsy or leading to the demise of the animal. 
I would much prefer the latter, so a distillation of those points in the history which the clinician considers important. Again, coming back to uh, communication, however, um, pathologists will always be keen to discuss further information about a history which is maybe missing with the clinician, particularly before commencing a post-mortem examination. So a, post, a, a pathologist might recognise some aspects of the history provided by the clinician which suggest a particular cause of death, but a fact or facts are missing. So the pathologist in that case would often telephone the clinician to get that additional information before starting the post-mortem examination. And I guess on the biopsy side, the, the equivalent to that is that um, where a pathologist has examined a biopsy and he or she has uh, a differential list, because of course not all biopsies enable a definitive diagnosis, they often enable a short list of likely diagnoses, then the pathologist will often ring the clinician to get some additional information about history or signalment, which might enable that differential list on pathology to be distilled down to a most likely diagnosis. And the other point to make there, I think, is pathologists like to be contacted by clinicians, so vice versa also applies. So if as a clinician you or, uh, or other colleagues receive a report from a pathologist, be it a post-mortem or a biopsy, where you feel a piece of information is missing or a diagnosis is maybe a little bit wide of the mark, absolutely ring the pathologist and discuss that because it might well be with additional information the pathologist would come to a different conclusion about the diagnosis. So communicate, 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 I think is the key thing. Is it, is it quite often, um, Ken, that people like don't necessarily write a lot of uh, history or information probably because they don't know it themselves so I suppose I, I, I don't know how often you would get presented cases of potentially like sudden death or unexplained deaths in which case maybe there is no pertinent history and, and you are in that sort of black box as it as it were and is that quite challenging in itself and also a, a quite interesting that you say that you know not giving you any information is a is a, obviously a terrible thing to do but i just wonder whether anyone sort of looked at that whether there are biases in 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 people or or, or veterinary terms so i think that would be especially interesting to look at I, I i think the the term is confirmation bias whereby if one's given a piece of information which suggests a particular conclusion then one's more likely to come to that conclusion. Um, to, to, to spool back to the original question, though, in relation perhaps to sudden death is, is a good example, there would certainly be instances where and sudden death is probably the best one, where there is little or no pertinent history, and then the pathologist simply has to work with what he or she finds on the dissection of the animal. Um, what can also be of value in sudden death investigations, though, particularly of farmed animals, so where the death has occurred in the natural environment or in the farmed environment. A very useful thing is for the um, clinician, the attending clinician, um, to send in some digital photographs, email in some digital photographs, of the area where the animal was found and the immediate environment around that animal. I guess the classic example would be dairy cattle, which are found dead after a storm in a field which is bordered by yew trees and yew leaves and yew berries have ended up in the pasture. They've been consumed by the animals. Of course, yew results in a sudden cardiac death because of the effect of the toxin 
on, on, on the heart. And having that environmental information that there are yew trees in the vicinity and some of that material is on the pasture may be the absolute clincher in making that diagnosis, which would otherwise be very difficult to make. Because we, we do get asked quite often, I suppose, like uh, about toxic uh, issues and toxicological screens. And I imagine uh, with with sudden death that comes up as well. But unfortunately, it's not as easy just to you know run a mass spectrometer on a blood sample and go, yes, it was you know cyanide and uh, Professor Plum with a with a candlestick sadly not um sadly not i mean there there is a place for a broader toxicological screen and often mass spectrophotometry would be the technique employed to do that there is there is a place for that and a number of laboratories offer that and i think it is very useful but i think it often falls down because of the very breadth of the number and variety of toxins that one is identifying my preference, I think, in the case of a sudden death or an animal which is acutely ill where perhaps a biopsy is collected to, or a blood sample to establish whether the animal might have been poisoned, is to use that pathological information to narrow down the risk of possible toxins based on an understanding of does that toxin principally affect the central nervous system, does it affect the liver, does it affect the kidney, um, which enables a more precise selection of toxicological assays which obviously also has an immediate financial implication for the client in terms of the cost of that testing um, easier said than done in some cases but I think if a, if a thorough post-mortem examination is done in a case of sudden death or acute death the pathologist ought reliably to be able to rule out certain toxins and perhaps to rule in a shorter list of the ones which are the most likely cause of the animals death. And can I just ask you with regards to actually sampling in itself, you mentioned about biopsies as well as a, a full post-mortem, has, has anything changed with the, with the digital age about do you quite often submissions have a photo of what they're dealing with? So I can imagine there's um, certain say cutaneous tumours that might be removed en masse and submitted but there might be a sample of say for example a, a liver that they've potentially removed a lobe or or part of a, a liver and do they are people sending photos and also just if it is that has anything changed with how you should submit it do you want a bit of normal tissue do you do you, how should it be actually sent to you yeah well thank you two very good questions I'll, I'll take the photographs first the answer to the photographs is is an absolute yes it's it's very valuable to a pathologist to have a digital photograph of a lesion at surgery or immediately after surgery before the lesion has been put into the formalin fixative while it's its natural colours. Um, that's highly valuable and indeed it's something that within the Royal Veterinary College routinely our um, technicians within our pathology laboratory will take digital photographs of lesions at the stage we call cut up in a pathology laboratory which is the stage between the lesion having been submitted and the tissue sections being prepared. So the, our technicians will take a digital photograph of the whole lesion, so indicating the colour, the size, the shape, and that digital photograph will come through to our pathologist along with the tissue sections, the glass slides, which enables the pathologist to come to a more informed decision about things like 
the margins of the lesion, are they smooth or are they invasive? Clearly that's important in tumours in particular. Um, whether a lesion perhaps is necrotic centrally, in which case the colour will be different, the consistency is also different, of course one can only infer that from the, the photograph. So we would absolutely encourage the use of digital photographs. The other thing that we do at the college and a number of other pathology laboratories are also doing this now, thanks to digital imaging, particularly for referral practices or for colleagues who might wish to case report a lesion on the basis of an unusual pathology or an unusual clinical presentation, is the pathologist, thanks to digital imaging, is also able, if requested, to include a digital photomicrograph, so a digital photograph of the microscopic features of the lesion with the pathology report. D digital photography is really something, I suppose, that has revolutionised all of our lives, but in pathology has had a particular impact in terms of the ease and the immediacy of being able to visualise lesions and to provide that information to the pathologist from the clinician and then from the pathologist back to the, 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 the clinician. In, in respect of the second part of the question about have the details of the sampling um, changed, there has not been a similar revolution there. So the same mantras that you would have been taught at veterinary school, I was taught at veterinary school, still apply. Um, so the key things are um, to sample um, the most representative areas of the lesion. If a, if a lesion is small or if the biopsy is small, the best example is an endoscopic biopsy, then simply to immerse all of that material into formalin with, with no further dissection is the key thing. But if the lesion or the sample is large, let me give the example of a splenectomy specimen where perhaps one is concerned about a splenic tumour. Um, remember the um, the chemistry or the physics around formalin fixation, which is that formalin penetrates tissues very slowly. Um, and therefore, if one um, submits to a pathology laboratory a large organ like a canine spleen, even in a large volume of formalin, um, it's unlikely to impossible that the formalin will have penetrated to the centre of that organ by the time that the sample is received by the pathology laboratory. So the, the pragmatic solutions to that are two solutions. I'll use the spleen again as the example. Um, either simply to um, make a series of parallel slices through the spleen at intervals before the whole organ is fixed, and that means that the cut surfaces of the organ will all have fixed by the time the sample is received and the pathologist or his or her technician will select the samples from those cut surfaces or alternatively to select within the practice parts of that spleen to submit for pathology. So sticking with the example of the, the spleen because often that can be a problematic diagnosis for a pathologist by virtue of the size of a canine spleen and the complex or any animal spleen and the complexity of the um, the microscopic structure if one's selecting samples from a spleen containing a tumor then you mentioned about margins in in, in your question Dorman um, always remember to select a sample from within the lesion um, ideally not from the very center of the lesion because that will very often be necrotic if the tumor is malignant and it's outgrowing its blood supply. So focus on uh, tissue towards the edge of the lesion which is more likely to be to be viable. 
also sample across the lesion and the margin with the normal spleen. And that's thinking about if the lesion is a tumour, is it invading into the tissue around it, or if it's malignant, or is it encapsulated and therefore more likely benign? And the third thing to remember, this is the one which is sometimes forgotten, is also send in a sample or two from the spleen which does not contain the tumour. Um, so um, it's a matter of trying to cover for the different aspects of the lesion. We have the luxury here, of, of course, at the College of being a university hospital, university diagnostic service all on the one campus. Um, and so we would generally receive a whole organ for sampling, but of course, logistically, putting that sort of sample into the post is is harder. Um, the, the other point I'd make about fixation, and, and this is the one where I think within the pathology profession, we're all waiting for the, the great um, seismic shift is the seismic shift of someone identifying a fixative alternative to formalin, which, like formalin, maintains a good tissue morphology, maintains a good tissue structure under the microscope. The reason for saying that being that formalin is, as, as you'll be aware, aware is, a, is a carcinogen. And while it is an excellent fixative and has been used for decades, right back to the early days of medical and veterinary pathology, a number of companies and a number of laboratories are experimenting with other fixatives which are not carcinogenic. But so far, to my knowledge, uh, no one has identified the holy grail of a non-carcinogenic fixative which fixes uh, to the same level of structural detail as formalin does. The reason for mentioning that is simply around health and safety that remember uh, when you are fixing tissues in formalin, it is a carcinogen, so always submit the tissues within a sealed uh, container. Um, also remember that um, because formalin, as I mentioned, penetrates slowly into tissues, one needs to have a significantly larger volume of formalin to tissue in order to maximise the rate of penetration and the efficiency of fixation. Generally, therefore, we'd say a 10 to 1 ratio of formalin to tissue. So if we think about a relatively small biopsy, let's say one centimetre cubed, then if that's submitted in a sealed universal bottle but with between 10 and 20 millilitres of formalin in, in, in the universal, then that should be optimal for the fixation. What's not optimal is the enthusiastic clinician who bundles very large numbers of tissues into a universal bottle, having the, the, the dual disadvantage that those tissues will fix uh, very poorly, but also tissue before it's fixed, soft, soft tissue before it is fixed, is pliable. After it's fixed, it's relatively rigid. And so if too much uh, tissue is bundled into uh, too little formalin, it can also be very difficult to get that tissue out of the container at all, particularly if the container has a narrow as a narrow neck. It's like the ship in the bottle situation. Uh, so some practical tips in respect of formalin fixation. And is that still <coughs> uh, an, an issue with um, pathologists across the board that um, as, as clinicians sending samples, unfortunately we don't put them in enough formalin in, in, in general and also the you know, maybe we send you the whole spleen and it's actually you know, not in a proper fixative and, and maybe started to get necrotic so already. We, we, yeah, so we do we do see that from time to time. Um, certainly on the BVET med course um, here in 
London and comparable veterinary courses uh, across the world, um, pathologists in, in, in teaching the undergraduates uh, will be making those points very clearly and very explicitly. So I, I think we now see, thankfully, just a small minority of cases um, where uh, the, the diagnosis is impossible because of the inadequate fixation or poor fixation technique. Um, the situation where we would still see misdiagnoses or where we are unable to come to a diagnosis which is out with the clinician's control largely or sometimes to a degree within his or her control is in relation to post-mortem where there's been a longer delay or an unknown delay between the death of an animal and the samples being submitted for post-mortem and then of course that's out with any of our control but because the processes of autolysis and putrefaction the natural degradation of tissues which occurs after death mean that those tissues are already structurally breaking down before they ever go into the formal infixative. And the, the practical um, tip there for us all to remember is that autolysis, self-digestion, the breakdown of tissues by the body's own enzymes after death, or putrefaction, breakdown by bacterial enzymes, those are temperature-dependent processes. So they're much slower in cooler temperatures. So where feasible, again, easier said than done. But if there is going to be a delay in submitting an animal for a post-mortem examination, it's worthwhile to chill that carcass before it's submitted for post-mortem examination. Again, we have the, the luxury here at the college as being a university hospital that we have a very large cold room where we can chill horses, uh, animals up to the size of horses or, or even larger. But um, small animals, um, it may be possible within the, the practice to chill those carcasses if there's going to be a delay before they're collected. And that makes a big difference in terms of slowing the rate of post-mortem decomposition and therefore optimising the chances of coming to a diagnosis. And as you said, uh, Ken, it's very difficult to say because it is a temperature-dependent process, but I imagine a lot of clinicians will have um, potentially uh, uh, clients, uh, animals that have died maybe overnight, and then they, maybe they've brought that to the, uh, to the clinician the following day. Is there a time delay, do you think, where, where we should actually say, look, the likelihood, even if we do a post-mortem of finding anything because of the normal... Um, uh, degenerative processes or autolysis that happens, it's unlikely for us to um, to expect a reasonable diagnosis. So there is there are some um, data on that point. Some of which data were generated by a, a previous uh, undergraduate student, now a veterinary surgeon from the Royal Veterinary College, who was intercalating in pathology, and um, her intercalation project was to um, look at beagle dogs, which had been euthanized for reasons unrelated to the research, but then were held in our post-mortem room, so at room temperature, and then sampled at initially hourly and then daily intervals in order to establish the extent of post-mortem decomposition. And um, those data, which are in, 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 in harmony with other data from workers at other universities, um, would indicate that one can say it's certainly still worthwhile to submit an animal for post-mortem up to 48 hours after the animal has died, unless it's been held in extremely hot environmental conditions. Um, the, the, the only caveat to that being that 
certain tissues within an animal's body and in, 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 in a person's body decay much more quickly than others. And the tissue which decays the quickest in uh, animals is the gut and specifically the lining of the gut, the mucosa of the gut. And so if one is concerned to make a diagnosis of enteritis after death, then trying to ensure that that animal is submitted to the uh, pathology lab as quickly as possible is very valuable. Practical tip around that is, if that's impossible, if the clinician is able to do, I guess I could describe it as a little bit of keyhole surgery or make an incision into the animal's abdomen, collect some pieces of intestine quickly and fix those in formalin, then that stops the process of decomposition. And then that enables time to identify a courier company organised for the logistics of sending the animal in. Um, we have, um, particularly in respect of our forensic team um, here at the college, which is headed, headed by Dr Henny Martineau, Henny has been able to make diagnoses with considerably longer post-mortem intervals than that. But those diagnoses are, generally speaking, made on the basis of gross or so naked eye changes and would very often be changes involving hard tissues or so fractures involving bones, which clearly decay much more slowly than, than soft tissues. But I, I think to come back to the, the answer, um, ideally submit as soon as possible, um, within 12 hours is, is ideal, but up to 48 hours it's certainly uh, possible to achieve a, a diagnosis. Coming back to the initial point about communication, um, the pathologist will also, will certainly be able to make an assessment before undertaking the post-mortem examination of estimating the degree of decomposition which is likely to be there because there are external changes which occur in the animal. And if he or she, as the pathologist, considers at that time that the pathology is unlikely to be conclusive, would communicate that back to the to the clinician at that time. And the other point to make is, again, it's, it's communication, which I'm stressing really throughout this interview, is um, if in doubt, ring the pathologist before submitting the animal for post-mortem, because depending on the diagnosis which one is seeking to achieve, so I use the example of a fracture, it's possible to conclusively diagnose a fracture by imaging, diagnostic imaging, or by post-mortem for some considerable period after death, whereas enteritis is much harder to diagnose if the post-mortem delays, even a matter of one or two days can make that diagnosis very difficult. Thank you very much, Ken. Can I, can I also ask, do, do a number of um, clinicians actually do the post-mortem themselves and send you representative samples of tissue, and is that comparable or, or even preferable to, uh, to you as a pathologist? Or are there certain things that you, um, other questions that you would like to know from that or you know, common things that maybe we as clinicians don't necessarily do as, uh, do as well? I, th I think um, I'd I, I, I qualify my answer by saying I, I think it depends on the circumstances. I think in, in an ideal world, and I guess I would say this as a pathologist who's blessed by working within a university postmortem room and has all of the facilities within the room and, you know, dedicated technicians and a terrific team. Um, in an ideal world, submitting the whole animal for postmortem is going to give the greatest information by virtue of hopefully 
establishing cause of death or the the nature of the underlying illness which necessitated euthanasia but also over and above that looking for other processes which are present in that body which in the case of a farmed animal might be relevant to other animals in the herd or the flock so if the animal has a parasite burden which has which is significant has died for another reason, but knowing that it has a significant parasite burden is very useful information for the farm vet and ultimately the farmer in terms of anthelmintic therapy of the other the other animals. Um, so in an ideal world, uh, a full post-mortem, where that's not possible, and very often logistically it's not possible, then absolutely a post-mortem performed in practice is highly valuable. What I would say about that is to maximise the value Again, remembering digital photography, it's worthwhile to take photographs at intervals during the post-mortem examination. Ideally, to speak to a pathologist before uh, starting the post-mortem examination because he or she may well have hints or tips as to you should focus on these particular parts of the body. Um, and then the other points are those you'll remember, I'm sure, from your undergraduate days. Again, it was also drummed into me as a as a vet student is that um, when undertaking a post-mortem one should, where at all possible, examine all of the body organs rather than just focusing on a particular area. It, it's, it's very tempting when doing a post-mortem um, let's say that an animal is suspected or is known to have a lesion involving the skin, most likely a tumour, uh, the animal is put to sleep with uh, a suspicion of metastatic disease and then at post-mortem one samples the skin tumour, one maybe opens into the abdominal cavity, finds no evidence of secondaries but doesn't open in the into the chest cavity and therefore one can't close that circle of was there or was there not metastasis to the lungs which for certain tumours would be the most likely uh, route of metastasis. Um, so examining um, all of the internal organs, uh, photographing um, and sending those photographs in with the um, with the samples and then when sampling remembering just like a biopsy the points that I made small pieces of tissue in a disproportionately larger volume of formalin. Um, another practical tip sometimes forgotten understandably is if one's sampling multiple different areas of let me say for example the gut, um, sample those into individually labelled containers so that the pathologist is able to identify which part was which. It's possible to some degree, using my example of the gut, certainly a pathologist is able to distinguish under the microscope small intestine from large intestine and to a degree proximal middle versus distal small intestine but it's much easier to have that information provided by the clinician who's collected the samples and knows exactly where the tissues have come from. Um, the other thing I, I, I would say, though, in, in I guess, curbing my enthusiasm for comprehensive postmortems is also that as veterinary surgeons with the care of animals and the care of our clients in, in mind, another point of context is it's wholly understandable if an animal owner does not wish a full post-mortem examination to be undertaken but wishes a more targeted post-mortem examination to be undertaken and, and that's where certainly within university hospitals and in, in tertiary referral centres where there is um, 
access to advanced diagnostic imaging facilities like MRI and, 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 and CT, the concept of the so-called virtual necropsy or, or virtual post-mortem, um, which is, is used to um, uh, a significantly increasing degree in human pathology work now, is beginning to be investigated as an option in, in veterinary pathology. So what I mean by a virtual necropsy or a virtual post-mortem is that an animal has advanced diagnostic imaging which targets with some precision where lesions are in that animal's body and often what those lesions might be or at least what they will most likely are and then the pathologist is able to focus his or her examinations on collecting from those sites so the advantages are that where there are sentimental or religious or cultural or other wholly understandable reasons why an owner might not want his or her animal fully to be dissected. Um, that's not necessary because the investigation can be done in a very targeted manner um, and then almost like a keyhole surgery the, the incisions then are repaired. Um, if the um, imaging has correctly targeted where the, the lesions are then they ought to be able to be identified. The disadvantage is the one that I mentioned at the beginning of this part of our conversation, that any underlying disease in that animal will not able to be identified if that more targeted approach is, is undertaken. But um, always as pathologists, I, I, I think certainly in, in, in recent decades, um, as a profession, um, we realise and appreciate and applaud the advances in diagnostic imaging and I, I think it's very important that pathologists and diagnostic images work hand in hand, recognising that in some cases one will be able to achieve a diagnosis either wholly through post-mortem diagnostic imaging or through post-mortem diagnostic imaging combined with pathology and I don't think either images or pathologists should be threatened by that. I think it's important that we work together in that respect. Thank you again, Kim. Can I also also was thinking when you were talking about like post mortems in general that maybe some of our colleagues um, will be maybe um, going to say on a on a farm that uh, a sudden death of a of an animal that I suppose potentially could have a notifiable disease and also um, for whatever reason maybe the uh, the clinician is not as familiar with that species as um, uh, as other other species so so is there any I suppose is there any sort of particular tips for I don't know poultry or pigs or or uh, or cattle where maybe you are concerned about a um, a notifiable disease and and, and again is that communication or contacting the pathologist first or other other things that maybe people should do it's certainly communication but before um, contacting the pathologist or at the same time as contacting the pathologist in the case of a suspected notifiable disease it would be in the UK context to take advice from the animal and plant health agency because um, clearly if a notifiable disease is present then the APHA advice has to be followed from that point forward and it may well be that the um, veterinary surgeon within the APHA um, will direct either that the animal be uh, submitted to a particular laboratory which would often be one of the APHA's own laboratories so a veterinary investigation centre or one of the larger government laboratories either in Weybridge or in Purbright or in Scotland in Lasswade 
where there's the opportunity to examine animals in contained conditions so that there's no risk of a escape of the infectious agent in the case of a notifiable disease into the environment and the risk of further spread. So take APHA advice at an early stage. It's much better to have made a false made a false imp- had a false impression that a disease might be notifiable and it's not but to have done the right things than to have missed a notifiable disease through not taking the appropriate advice or not undertaking the postmortem under the appropriate and safe conditions and the other point i would make in relation to i guess this is around reasons why one might not wish as a practitioner to do a postmortem examination but certainly to refer it is in the case where one suspects the disease might be zoonotic. Um, Thankfully, in this country, anthrax is now um, vanishingly rare to having been eradicated, thank goodness. But in former times, anthrax would be an example of a disease where undertaking a field post-mortem would be wholly unwise from the point of view of the safety of the, the operators. In countries where rabies is endemic, rabies would be another good example of that, where there may be reasons for operator safety that one doesn't want to undertake the post-mortem examination. Is there a certain amount of safety that, uh, that performing a post-mortem examination that you would normally do, Ken? Is there a normal amount of uh, personal protective equipment that you would do? Because I suppose there's always a, the unknown, isn't there, about these potential notifiable diseases or zoonotic diseases? There is. So um, I, I use the example of, of what we do here at the Royal Veterinary College. So um, the, 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 the base, if you like, entry level of personal protective um, equipment, which we all wear as pathologists, our students wear, as learners and our technicians wear, is we'd wear um, Wellington boots, we would wear a disposable paper suit, much beloved from Silent Witness and CSI, so a disposable paper suit for each of the um, sessions of post-mortem examination, a disposable plastic apron, um, disposable plastic gauntlets, um, and then Kevlar gloves, which are the cut-proof gloves that avoid the risk of inadvertent um, sharps injury when cutting uh, through tissues. Um, We don't routinely wear um, masks for post-mortem examinations, but if there's any suspicion that a disease might be zoonotic, um, then our process here is that we would then, depending on the degree of risk, um, we would uh, escalate up initially to the wearing of face masks. Um, The next step up would be to have the investigation done, and again, I'm speaking about our process here within the university, um, only by a small team of pathologists and technicians, so without our veterinary students, so minimising the number of people who are involved in the investigation, and then the ultimate level of uh, security for a highly zoonotic disease, um, tuberculosis would be an example, so a examination of an animal with tuberculosis would be that um, it would be a small team and they would be wearing full body respirators so the the space suits if you like that you sometimes see on the forensic television programs um, so the point I would make in respect of a field post-mortem is that um, that high level of personal protective equipment I think is not something which is feasible in a field situation so if one has a concern about one of those zoonoses that would be why the advice would be to refer um i think in terms of um uh, a field postmortem where one doesn't suspect a zoonosis it's really just 
common sense, I, I guess, in respect of a field post-mortem of a farmed animal, the sort of protective equipment that one might wear if one was doing field surgery in a farm animal is, is what one would recommend. And ideally, um, to make sure that after the exam examination, those pieces of kit which are not disposable, so the Wellington boots, are thoroughly disinfected, and ideally um, other things are disposable, so the gloves that one wear wears are disposable and those are, are disposed of in, a, in an appropriate manner. R remembering that um, a post-mortem examination in the field, particularly of a large animal like a cow or a horse, is a very contaminating procedure in terms of the level of environmental contamination. So um, there are also other things that one might think about in those circumstances in respect of having uh, tarpaulins or plastic sheeting around the animal which is being examined so any of the inevitable spillages from the, the body cavities are at least to some degree contained rather than permeating into the, the soil. But field postmortems are very difficult on large animals so whereas it's often essential that they're done, my own personal preference is either to um, use the services of the, the local knacker man, who's very often he or she highly experienced interpreting gross pathology and visiting the farm down at the knacker's yard when it's being opened up, um, is, a, is a safer thing to do. Or certainly if it's a notifiable zoonotic disease, to refer to a government laboratory rather than to undertake the post-mortem in the field. Fabulous, fabulous. Can I um, sort of uh, maybe finish up or, or round up by asking what do you think has has uh, has changed um, within regards to uh, pathology? I suppose and thinking more about um, you, the, uh, you know, digital um, microscopy and scanning actually uh, sections has that enabled more um, interpretation by a number of different pathologists and, and to get a bit more, uh, I suppose, consistency or, or has it actually, is it working in the favour of pathologists or is that actually, does it throw out more questions about how one in, interprets things and also maybe where you see things going in the, in the future? I th I th so in respect of, I think there are two um, paradigm shifts in pathology at within my 30 years, give or take, within the profession. Um, the first of which is certainly digital pathology, and, and I think that's wholly to the advantage of the animal and the client. The, the, the great advantage of digital pathology, and you've identified it, Dom, is the ability to share images nationally or internationally, and thereby to achieve consensus diagnoses. Um, pathology, like clinical medicine, has an element of subjectivity around it and so two heads or more are always better than one and the ability instantaneously to share an image with a colleague on the other side of the world who might be a specialist in a particular uh, disease is, is highly valuable. Um, the other advantage of digital pathology more in respect of research than diagnostics although the two often overlap is that of course digital pathology lends itself very much to measurement of changes within biopsies or post-mortems so the computer and image analysis software being able to measure let's use enteritis as an example measure exactly the change in the size or the shape of a villus within the small intestine enumerate exactly the number of inflammatory or other cells which are infiltrating that villus and the reason I, I, I mention that is um, the other paradigm shift um, in, in my time in the profession um, has been 
the continuing recognition of the importance of molecular pathology not over and above but hand in hand again with hand in hand with classical pathology so what i mean is that we increasingly understand i'll use mammary tumors as as an example um, we increasingly understand both in in people and in cats to whom mammary tumors are quite analogous to those which occur in people more so more so than between dogs and people um, that understanding the molecular phenotype of a mammary carcinoma is of at least if not greater prognostic benefit for that cat than the simple classical pathology of it's a papillary adenocarcinoma or it's a tubular adenocarcinoma. Of course that is important, but understanding which proteins are expressed on the surface of the, the carcinoma cells um, has been shown by a number of research teams, just as it has been shown in people, to map quite exactly or relatively more precisely to prognosis. But also within our veterinary profession in the coming years and decades may enable more precisely targeted therapies for the, the animal patient in respect of targeting anti-cancer drugs to particular proteins which are overexpressed or underexpressed. So of many excitements within veterinary medicine, doubtless in the coming decades, the era of personalised medicine for animals in the same way that one has personalised medicine for a human patient, I think is something which we're already seeing within our profession. But again, I guess, finishing where I started, if, if clinicians and pathologists work together as one team and if they're both mindful of research breakthroughs, I think in our profession we'll see that personalised medicine advance very quickly over the coming years and decades. Can I just uh, ask one final point on that? Is the molecular um, pathology techniques, are they uh, available um, ubiquitously or are um, um, certain centres maybe more interested in certain research, say with, I don't know, with sheep or, or birds or, or even um, cat mammary tumours, as you said? Or, or is, this, is this something that everyone um, or every pathologist has, has access to? No, it, it would be the more specialised centres. Um, so very often it would be the um, the universities um, in the UK and internationally would have particular areas of research expertise. Um, a number of the larger commercial pathology laboratories in this country and, and internationally will offer quite a broad variety of molecular tests, but not necessarily the full spectrum. But they will be aware of where those other tests are able to be done. So... I guess it's a matter of shopping around in respect of the initial... I, I, I don't think we will ever um, depart from the need for classical pathology and a microscopic diagnosis. But I think having achieved that microscopic diagnosis, it's then a matter of distilling down what further molecular tests would be required, would be helpful, and then where those tests would be able to be done. Again, coming back to um, the digital revolution, um, whereas the tissues still have to be shipped to those other centres. Once the test has been done, of course, the images can be exchanged in real time. So the um, histopathologist who's undertaken the classical examination can be in direct dialogue with the molecular pathologist who's undertaken the molecular testing. So that raises the uh, question, Ken, why aren't you uh, sitting on a beach and uh, looking at uh, digital images? <laughs> so... Um, well, I'm smiling. I'm smiling, Don, because many of my colleagues now are either in beaches or in other places. And it has been an enormous 
well-being revolution, if, if I can put that work-life balance revolution for pathologists, because now I wonder how long it will be before the conventional microscope does become rather quaint and rather obsolete. I, I don't think that will be immediate, one, but one can see that happening. But by virtue of um, di digital pathology, as long as one has a reliable broadband connection and access to a server, one can be working anywhere in, in the world as a pathologist. And, and the other advantage to um, veterinary surgeons and to the owners of the animals, ultimately, that also means that a number of laboratories are exploring 24-hour pathology services by which the long-suffering pathologist, of course, is not working 24-hour shifts, but that 24-hour coverage is by taking advantage of time differences and different time zones so that the um, the digital images are being read by pathologists in different time zones so that one has genuine 24-hour coverage, um, which is absolutely a, a revolution. Well, thank you very much. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll end it there. We'll wrap it up there, uh, Ken. So thank you very much and uh, I'm wishing you and all yours a, um, a happy festive season and a new year. So, so thank you, Ken. Um, and thank you for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button and you, on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or any friends. We're, we're happy to have anyone listen so we'll place any show notes on the RVC pages if you just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine of choice it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield until next time bye bye